Welcome to Expert Gold Radio, which shows you how to leverage your leadership. Here's your host, Gahan Pereira, for this month's show. Welcome to Expert Gold Radio for March 2014. Wow, it's March already. Summer's still in full swing here in Australia, and here in Perth we've been enjoying, maybe enduring, some very warm and fine days and nights, which has been great for getting out and about. And in the business world, traditionally December and January are the quietest months in Australia, and now that we're into March, everybody's now had a full month back in the swing of things, and workplaces are buzzing. So that's why I thought it might be good for this episode of Expert Gold Radio to talk about your workplace and your workplace culture, and specifically about creating the best workplace on earth. I've got two in-depth conversations for your listening pleasure this month. The first is about telecommuting and how to create a really positive, productive workplace culture for your telecommuting staff, who are some Sometimes forgotten in the traditional workplace. And then we hear from culture expert Michael Henderson about the broader topic of organizational culture and why it might be different from what you might expect when people talk about culture and strategy. So let's first start talking about the best out of office or telecommuting workplace on earth. If you think about the workplace and what employees want from it, that's changed radically over the years. And in the past, workplaces were pretty paternalistic. So people were operating from a paternalistic control mindset where employees were expecting their bosses to do stuff to advance their career. And now modern workplaces are far more focused on personal empowerment. And this is especially true for telecommuters or out-of-office workers who, by definition, work out of sight and they rely on their managers and leaders to give them the tools and the resources and the culture to help them achieve their work goals. So in this conversation, Chris Padney interviews me about a Harvard Business Review report recently about the best workplace on earth. They come up with six factors and we apply them to telecommuters or what we call out-of-office work. Today we're going to be talking about the best out-of-office workplace on earth. It's based on some research that's come out recently about workplaces. And, and I think it's pretty obvious that workplaces have changed and what employees want from their workplace has changed. And if you look at employee surveys over the years, you can see that there has been a shift. I did some research and a couple of examples. In 1991, there was a Gallup poll uh, asking employees what they wanted. And these were the top things that came up things like good health insurance and other benefits, uh, interesting work, job security, vacation time, uh, recognition from co-workers, and regular working hours. Then 10 years later, in 2001, the World Economic Forum report uh, reported on another employee engagement survey and looking at what employees wanted. And now things have shifted slightly, so people are looking for things like work-life balance and still job security and, and still financial rewards from their work. But now a few more things like influence and autonomy and professional satisfaction. Um, but if you look, jump ahead another 10 years, uh, in 2013, the Harvard Business Review, two researchers did, did this fairly comprehensive survey of employees, and they found that of what people are looking for uh, are quite different now. And they came up with these six factors called the best workplace on earth. And they talked about things like letting me be myself and telling me what's going on and figuring out my strengths and magnifying them and giving me work that's meaningful. And those are the sort of things that people are now looking for. And if you look at that spectrum, it's clear that in 1991, workplaces were pretty paternalistic. So it was a, c a command and control, a hierarchical model where employees were expecting the employer to do the stuff for them to advance their careers. And if you look at the 2013 version, it's very much focused on personal empowerment. So it's about the employee saying, 
um, I want somewhere that's going to not only um, I don't want you just to tell me what to do, but I also want somewhere that's fulfilling, that's rewarding, and in return, I'll do stuff for you. So if you think about employees now looking for personal empowerment, it's especially true for out-of-office workers, which is who we talk about, Chris, and by definition, they are out of sight and sometimes out of mind, but we'll get to that, but they rely on their managers and leaders to give them the tools and the resources and even the corporate culture to help them achieve their work goals, and they're left to their own devices, so they have to be, A, they have to be empowered, but also their their organization has to empower them and allow them to do those sort of things that, that modern workers are looking for. Yeah. Yeah, so we're going to take the factors that were listed in that Harvest Business Review. There were six of them, and we're going to give them an out-of-office work spin. Uh, so we're going to look at creating the, those six factors as factors for creating the best out-of-office workplace on earth. So today's conversation, typically we'd focus on conversations that are about out-of-office workers, but today's conversation is particularly relevant if you're actually a manager or a leader who's got telecommuters in their team or if you're considering offering out-of-office work to your team members. If you are an out-of-office worker, then you could pass this podcast on to your manager and ask them to consider creating the perfect or the ideal out-of-office workplace for you. Yeah, and I think it's also probably worth emphasizing, Chris, that when we say out-of-office worker, um, there's there's a range of ways that that can happen. So telecommuting is probably the most common one, but also this applies if you've got a remote team, so your team members aren't in the same city or the same office, or even if you're doing things like outsourcing, where you may have team members who are just there on contract, and they may not be seen as as full members of your team, but some of these principles do apply to them as well. That's right. So anyone who's working remotely from you, I suppose, Gihan, whether they're telecommuters or, as you say, you've got a distributed global team. Yep. Yep. Okay, so let's start with the first of these six factors. And the first one is let me be myself. And that's about allowing workers to be themselves, so to be the same person they are at work as the person they are at home, so that they feel that they can freely express opinions or if they've got any unique skills that they can they can apply them at work. Uh, I listened to an interview, Gihan, with the authors of this report, and they said that men are particularly bad at this, that uh, some guys, they go to work and they'll role-play their way through the week, and then uh, they've got the hope of rediscovering their humanity on the weekend. And that's really, that's, that's, that's not a way to live, to have 48 hours to be human and uh, the rest of the time that you're a work drone and there's also benefits to, to this for this to the to the organization as well in so much as if people feel that they can't express themselves freely at work then the organization is missing out on useful ideas and if they have skills that they're not contributing they feel held back then the the organization is missing is missing out on those as well but when it comes to out of office workers in particular Gihan, you've you've listed three ideas they are be flexible be alert and be sensitive. Would you like to expand on those? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So this is if you're leading or managing an out-of-office work team or out-of-office workers. The first thing is to just be flexible because just keep in mind that one of the reasons they might have chosen that out-of-office work style is because it does suit some aspect of their lifestyle. They might have family commitments or like the flexible working hours or where they live or being able to travel. So as much as possible, accommodate that, and that is part of letting them be themselves. And The second thing is be alert. 
And just be aware that if you communicate remotely with people, that there sometimes does cause problems because uh, it's easy to misunderstand people. You don't get their tone of voice. Sometimes people will take offense faster because they just see something written and they, they flare up. And sometimes they don't even respond to that. So conflicts can take longer to resolve. So as a manager, you need to be able to encourage people to express their opinions and have differences of opinion, but also be alert to these problems that can arise and be sure that you can resolve issues quickly when they do arise. It doesn't mean that you need to stamp out any sort of differing opinion. In fact, that's the opposite of what you need to do. But you also need to be aware of some of the interpersonal problems that can, that can come up, which happen through remote communication. Um, and the third thing is be sensitive. So just be aware that people being themselves, uh, especially in remote teams or telecommuting, they might be from different countries, they might be from different cultures, they, they might be working in different time zones. So what might be morning for somebody when they're really alert and ready to go into a busy working day might be evening for somebody else when they're just winding down. So just, just be aware of some of those differences so that you can allow people to be themselves. Yeah, very good. So the second characteristic is tell me what's really going on. So workers want to know the facts. They want to know them unvarnished and in full so that they can make their own informed decisions. So they need to know the whole story. Nothing needs to be left out. They, need to, they, don't, they don't want it to have uh, spin applied so that they get uh, all the background and, uh, and they can make decisions with full information. They also want to know that if they say something negative, that uh, it's not going to be considered disloyal. And they want to feel that upper management and top executives actually want to hear bad news, that, that they need to know when things are broken. And they're only going to hear about that if uh, workforce and employees speak out. So again, Gihan, in the case of uh, managing teams, uh, distributed teams and remote workers, you've come up with three key ideas. And they are share equally, open up and lend, lend them an ear. Yep. Okay, so the first one is sharing equally. And one of the problems with an out-of-office work team, especially if not everybody is out of office, is that it's easy for them to forget about them. So you leave them, you keep them out of the loop. And mostly that happens by accident because, you know, for example, they just don't happen to be around for the staff meeting where everybody else gets the news and you just forget to tell them. So you've got to be aware of that. But also sometimes it's done intentionally. It's not often maliciously, but sometimes intentionally you might leave somebody out and keep them out of the loop simply because you think maybe they're not as important a team member because they're not a, they're not in the office all the time. And uh, you know, for example, if you have if you outsource some work to a contractor, that contractor may not be seen as a full member of the team, where in fact. They, they might be happy to be and they would be willing to be seen as a full member, but, but you don't share information equally with them because you see them as a second-class citizen. So don't do that. Um, and the other two things are uh, with information flowing the other way. So open up is providing ways for them to share information with you and also not only with you, but also with others. And in some ways, the out-of-office environment actually facilitates this because there are online collaboration tools available that make this a little bit easier. So you can have your team working with online tools like wikis and blogs and forums and social media and private social media networks that allow people to, to communicate and open up with each other. And the third thing uh, I've called lend them an ear. And this is about making sure that you provide informal communication channels as well as the formal ones. So the ones I've just mentioned, like things like blogs and wikis, they're formal. And even if they're done casually, there's a record of them. So they're online, they're, record, they're, they're saved, 
they're backed up and they're kept for posterity. But you need to allow some informal channels as well. So just like your in-office team members can grab you and go for a coffee or just have a private conversation somewhere in the office or some, maybe outside the office, you need to allow your out-of-office workers to have that opportunity as well. So they, they've got to be able to be comfortable sharing stuff openly and some stuff that's private and confidential and doesn't get recorded and may be used against them in the future. So you have to provide some informal channels for off-the-record conversations. And that may be just as simple as allowing them to pick up the phone and call you or setting up a Skype conversation with you. Um, and I mean, the technology is there, but you've, they've got to feel comfortable doing that. Yeah, yeah. And I think it, you need to encourage, you need to be a bit proactive, don't you? Because I think it's easy for an out-of-office worker to just sit back and stay quiet because they're remote. It's sort of a, the natural thing to do. So sometimes you have to reach out, I think, and uh, encourage them to share what they have to say. Uh, and especially if they've got an off-the-record channel to do that, that helps. Yeah, exactly. And I think you use the, the key word there, Chris, which is being proactive. So you have to, uh, you have to make sure that they feel that you're going to be happy with them doing that, not just that you're going to tolerate it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the third characteristic is about adding value, and it's discover and magnify my strengths. So workers want to be able to contribute and in return want you to help them grow. And typically, uh, many organizations will apply these kinds of things at the executive and the upper managerial level, but really it needs to be applied across all of the workforce. You want everyone um, improving their productivity and adding value. So that, I guess, also extends, Gihan, to your remote workforce as well. So not just upper management and not just people who work in the office, but your entire workforce, be they working out of office or in the office. So you've got uh, several, several ideas here. They are include them, dig deep, help them grow, equal rights and grow up. Okay, so let's take them in turns. So include them is... It, again, it's easy to overlook them just because they aren't around. So make sure that they get the same opportunities as everybody else to contribute and to develop. So there are things that in-office workers might get which you, which you don't realize and you just take for granted that they're getting those opportunities and out-of-office workers might miss out simply because they're not in the office. And the, the things like, you know, for example, people might go to a training course to, to develop some strengths or to build up their skills or they may get paired up with a mentor in the office and it's easy to just forget about the fact that your out of office workers might also need or value those sort of opportunities but they don't get them. So the first thing is include them. Um, the second one is dig deep which is to look at them as more than just a body or a head who can do your their, their assigned task. So they might be capable of doing so much more but you may never discover this. Uh, whereas with your in-office workers and your in-office team members, you might discover this because you're around them all the time and you have informal chats where they might just um, drop into a conversation that, oh, they've got some graphic design skills and you didn't realize that, but you need those skills uh, to be able to design a brochure um, with your out-of-office workers because those conversations don't happen so often. It's easy to just assume that all, all they can do for you is their assigned roles. So, um, you know, dig deep, dig deeper, find out a little bit more about them and find out more about what they can contribute and what they want to contribute. Because remember, this is about discovering their strengths and magnifying them and allowing them to use those strengths. And your your workers want to do that. So help them do that. Um, and the next one I've touched on already, which is help them grow. So make sure that those traditional development opportunities that you give to your in-office workers 
um, don't exclude your out-of-office workers. So give them equivalent opportunities. So, for example, we uh, we might give our in-office workers a an in-person workshop or a training course, and you might give your out-of-office workers a MOOC uh, or a, an online learning opportunity so that they've got access to the same sort of learning and training opportunities. And um, Similarly with mentoring, then they might with your in-office workers, they might have mentors who are in the office itself, even if they're outside your team or your department. With your out-of-office workers, you can do it remotely, and that can work very effectively, but also maybe give them the opportunity to to find a mentor outside your organization. And maybe that's not part of your formal mentoring program, but you need to be flexible and allow that so that they get the chance to, to develop and grow as well. So the next one is equal rights. And what I mean by that is don't discriminate against them. And I'm not talking about traditional kind of discrimination or stereotypical kind of discrimination, discrimination, but this is don't discriminate against them just because you can't see and hear them every day. And it, it's, this is about the interpersonal communication that you have with your, with all of your team and your in-office workers. You see them every day. They, they hang out and do social things with you. And they, they're involved in some of the interpersonal dynamics, good and bad, in the office. And your out-of-office workers aren't in that situation. So you don't see and hear them all the time. So it's a little bit uh, like out of sight, out of mind. You've got to be careful that that doesn't happen. Or because you don't engage with them socially, perhaps you don't have that interpersonal interaction with them. And so they don't become friends or buddy, buddies, at, or at least work friends and work buddies. But that doesn't mean that they can't contribute equally uh, to both what's what you need them to do and also for you to be able to help magnify and discover their strengths as well. And the last one is to grow up. And what I mean by this is that out-of-office work is sometimes seen as only appropriate and feasible for your lower-level workers, but it's often seen as not appropriate once you get into managerial level or, or leadership roles. And so just be careful that this doesn't influence the way that you look at your out-of-office workers and you look at their potential. So what I mean by grow up is when you're looking at people for promotion, just keep in mind that your out-of-office workers might be equally uh, appropriate and uh, and the right person to promote, even if they're doing out-of-office work. So there's some things to consider. So one is, if an out-of-office worker is a potential candidate for some sort of leadership or management role, look for ways to assess those sort of skills before you push them into that role. With your in-office workers, you might be doing things like they come along to uh, management meetings with you or you give them the chance to give a presentation outside your team to just test test their presentation and communication skills. So you've got to think of ways, or equivalent ways, of allowing that for your out-of-office workers who might be being considered for management roles. The other thing to think about is just because you think that managers and leaders have to be in office all the time doesn't mean that it always has to be that way. And there might be ways to incorporate some sort of -of out-of-office work for the right sort of candidate uh, when you move them into management roles. So don't assume that just because uh, it, it has always been done in office, that it always has to be that way. And the last thing is, uh, out of office workers really do value their out of office time, but for the right job and the right position, they might be willing to sacrifice that out of office work and go into an in office role. So don't assume that they'll always want that above everything else. So if they have the chance to move into management role or leadership role, they might be willing to give up some or all of their out of office flexibility in order to take on that role. So don't overlook your out-of-office workers just because they are are out-of-office. 
Excellent. Excellent. Okay. So the fourth goal or the fourth characteristic is about aligning all of your workers with uh, the corporate identity and mission. So people, it's called Make Me Proud I Work Here, and workers want to work for someone that's, that they feel is making a difference in the world, uh, not just to their own life, like getting paid, for instance. So they need to know what uh, the company is about, they need to know uh, the values that they stand for, and they want to know that, that it's not all about making money and, and making profit. And that extends also to teams of distributed and out-of-office workers. And Gihan, you've got three points here. They are fill them in, include them, and ask them. Yep, okay. So fill them in is just, again, giving them the right sort of information. And we talked about information earlier, and that was mainly around their day-to-day -day work. But here we're talking about the big picture and the bigger purpose. So help them understand your mission and your culture and your values and your purpose and, uh, and help them feel part of a bigger team. So it's, it, it's pretty hard for them to get this sort of information the way that some of your in-office team members might do simply by being around everybody else and being in the office. So you just need to be more intentional and proactive about doing this. And it starts right from the time that you, that even that you interview them, that you make sure that you understand and help them understand your organization's culture and mission. And then, of course, once you bring them on board, then in your induction, then you talk about that. When you start projects, you make sure that that's part of it as well, so they, they feel part of it. Um, and when you do things like performance reviews, that also you help, the, you help reinforce and uh, help them understand the, the organization's culture and values. And this is not because you want to force feed it to them, but it's because they want to know. And it's, as you said, Chris, the, the point is make me proud I work here, and people want to feel proud that, that their work for the organization they work for, even if they're not in the office all the time. And the second one is to include them. And uh, there are things that you might do as part of your culture and as part of your community contribution. And it's easy to overlook them when you're doing that. So if you're doing a bike ride for charity or you're doing uh, some sort of sponsorship of, a, of, a, of your local school, then your in-office workers, it's easy for them to take part, but it's not as easy for your out-of-office workers. So think of creative ways that you can include them and help them feel part of that culture. Um, and the last thing is ask them. Uh, so it isn't only about you telling them, it's also about them sharing with you uh, what they would like, what sort of culture they would like to be part of, what sort of organization they like to be part of. Because culture is, culture is owned by the people, it's not owned by the organization. And your out-of-office workers um, have just as much right and just as much ability to influence the culture if you let them do that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this fifth characteristic is related. It's make my work meaningful. So it goes from sort of a corporate-wide culture to people's day-to-day -day work. They want to know that their day-to-day -day work is part of something, something that's uh, something bigger. So they need to know that their duties actually make sense, that they're contributing towards something and that their job is meaningful to them. So in the case of out-of-office workers, the three, the three points that you've listed, Gihan, are to start early, to check in and slack off. Yes, okay. Okay, so let's start with start early. So this is involving them right at the start of the project. So it's not only once they're deeply immersed in it, but right at the start of the project, help them meet other people, see how their role fits in, and allow them to contribute their ideas and take ownership of their role right at the start of the project so that they understand on a day-to-day -day basis where their, where their work fits in with everybody else's. And it's much harder for an out-of-office worker to see that because in an in-office team, that you're around your team members all the, all the time, whereas in an out-of-office 
uh, environment, you might just be, you might get tasks to do, and then you do the work uh, independently and privately by yourself, and then you send off the results, and you may never see where that fits in. So, so get this, get their understanding early on in the project. And then keep checking in. So the second one is that uh, you, you do want to keep checking in. And don't assume that your out-of-office workers are always going to stay engaged just because you involved them at the start of the project. Because things change. Projects change. The team members change. Roles within the team change. And sometimes individuals themselves within the team, their goals and their objectives change. So, so make sure that your out-of-office workers get to see those changes and understand those changes. So you just need to communicate more openly and probably more frequently in both directions about some of the things that are changing and also just checking in with them and just explaining again, if changes occur, how their work continues to be meaningful. And then the last one is slack off. And by that, I don't mean that you have to get have to be slack. But um, the point I'm making here is that a lot of out-of-office communication is is pretty efficient and tight, and that's usually a good thing. So, for example, um, in an online meeting, you tend not to have people turning up early and chatting informally, or you don't have so much by-play and banter within the meeting itself. It tends to be pretty focused and on task. But that also means that sometimes you're so focused on the specific details that some of the interpersonal dynamics get ignored or neglected. So you just got to allow time for that. And so maybe you do need to allow um, informal chatting at the start of a meeting or at the start of the, a, a weekly status meeting. People talk about what they did on the weekend. And it may only take up a couple of minutes in your meeting, but it just helps people, uh, again, connect with each other and also makes it easier for them to then engage with people on work-related tasks later, both inside and outside that meeting. So you don't want to do too much of that because that wastes people's time, but you also don't want to do none of it because then you, you miss out on the opportunities for people to engage with others and see where their work fits in. Yeah, I think getting the balance right is important, Gihan. And it does take a long time for that to develop for out-of-office workers. I mean, I've developed that kind of rapport with people, but I've worked with them for more than a decade now, and and often I've met them face-to-face when I've worked on site. Uh, So it does take some effort to to develop that uh, informal style and do so in a balanced fashion. So the last characteristic is don't hinder me with stupid rules. And I think it's perhaps my favorite as it makes the most practical sense to me on a daily basis. So the thing is that workers want rules and guidelines, but only if they're going to help them do their job well. So the rules need to be simple, clear and apply equally. And they need to actually make sense. And everyone needs to understand them. And finally, authority needs to be respected. In the case of out-of-office workers, Gihan, you've suggested to break rules, start over, and build trust. Yeah, look, before I explain what those are, Chris, like you mentioned that this is your favourite one because it does affect you. Can you give me an example of how that affects you and how you've been able to work around that? Yeah, sure. So in an out-of-office context, as a remote worker, often uh, there are technical rules and systems that are developed, but they really only apply to people who are working on site on the local intranet. And consideration hasn't been given to people who might be accessing the same resources but doing so remotely over a VPN. And so those kinds of, uh, those kinds of rules just get in the way and they make life difficult and you have to work around them or bend the rules in order to be able to work productively. So it's, I think it's the things you're going to talk about in a moment when you expand on your points. It's about uh, taking into consideration the fact that you've got remote workers when it comes to developing these rules. 
Yeah, good. And that is, that is a perfect lead into the first of my points, which is breaking the rules. Because as a leader or manager, if you look at some of the standard rules and policies that you're running yourself and that you've got control over, and even at a higher level, what your organization's rules might be, they're generally not designed with out-of-office work in mind. They, they might work, uh, but they might not. So some of them might be benign, so they're harmless and not applicable to out-of-office workers, but others can really get in the way. And you've, you've mentioned some examples there, Chris. So some of them are just frustrating. So there's red tape that you have to go through, which an out-of-office worker has to do even if it doesn't apply to them. Or they might even be more serious, and they're, they're things that do affect the business as a, and the organization as a whole. And there are even things that, like, um, that have legal ramifications and HR type of ramifications like insurance and security and employment conditions. So your social media policy, your organization might have rules around that, but they may not be relevant or appropriate or the best thing uh, for your out-of-office workers. So you've got to encourage your out-of-office workers to, to question the rules and then if they request some changes to the rules, you as a leader or a manager have, have to be willing to like, go into bat for them to change them if necessary. Now, some of them are easy because they're rules that you may have set and that you've worked with so you can change them, but others you may need to fight for them uh, on their behalf to get someone like HR or senior management to change the rules. So you do need to be able to break the rules. Um, the second one is starting over, and so breaking the rules can help. It's a little bit of a Band-Aid solution. But the, the key here is to focus on the goals that you want to achieve, not the rules. So pretend that the rule book doesn't exist at all. And then think about what you need your out-of-office workers to achieve for you. And then bring back the rules and the guidelines and the systems and the processes that actually help. So it doesn't mean that at the end of the process you're going to be able to go, okay, from now we're just going to follow this modified rule book, but it does help you highlight the things that are going to help you, and also it'll help you highlight the things that are missing that you may need to add in as processes and guidelines, because there's nothing wrong with rules, and there's nothing wrong with processes and guidelines, as long as they help facilitate the process of achieving your goals. And um, you know, your out-of-office workers and all your team members like having rules and processes and guidelines to work with, as long as they're helpful. And, and the last one is to build trust. And you talked about authority, Chris, and you talked about the fact that authority is respected. Well, it's true with out-of-office workers as well. But in general, uh, your out-of-office workers are going to trust and respect people because they are an authority, not because they have authority. In other words, they're going to respect you because of your expertise, not because of your job title or what it says on your business card or whether you've got the, the corner office or the, the premium parking spot uh, in the car park. So you've got to give them opportunities to, to build their own authority, and th there's some online tools that can do that, such as blogs and wikis and forums. Maybe get them to chair a meeting or make an online presentation. So they build their authority so that other team members call on them, and also allow them to be able to see the authority of other people. So if you allow your other team members to do those sort of things like blogging, then that happens. Um, but also remember that they may be con connecting and engaging with other people inside and outside the organization. So obviously other team members, but there may be others in the organization that they want to connect with. There may be external experts that they want to either bring in formally or just ask for advice from time to time. Um, they may want to get access to potential mentors who can help them develop and grow. And so help them see the expertise in other in other people as well. So as, as a leader or manager, you want to be, your job is to help expose them to that because that's the way 
that they find the people that they're going to respect and trust. So there we have it. That's six characteristics for creating the best workplace on earth with a focus on your out-of-office workers and remote workforce. And Gihan, I think if there's one theme that uh, recurs through those six characteristics when you talked about leading out-of-office workers, it, it's that of an inclusion. So uh, in many instances, I think uh, it's easy to forget your remote workers, your telecommuters, and I think many of the ideas you've suggested today have been taking into consideration the fact that you've got out-of-office work workers and treating them as full members of your workforce, not just as an afterthought. Is there anything you wanted to add? Keep in mind that your out-of-office workers... And this is going to be a bit of a generalization, but your out-of-office workers might be more proactive, more disciplined, more productive, uh, more goal-oriented than some of your in-office workers, simply because they have to do the, they have to have those sort of characteristics to make out-of-office work work for them. So if you're not tapping into their potential, then you're missing out on a, on a huge amount of potential that's there, just waiting. Uh, waiting to be used and it can help you and it can help them as well. Do you want to work from virtually anywhere? The internet makes it possible and the book Out of Office shows you how. Get your copy at outofofficebook.com and get more convenience, comfort and freedom in your work life. I hope you enjoyed the conversation about creating a productive culture for your telecommuting or out-of-office staff. Now let's look at your entire organization and look at your organization's culture. And for that, I turn to an expert in this area, Michael Henderson. I love spending time with Michael because I always walk away with some really great insights. And this conversation was no exception. And I hope you get some value from it as well. This is actually an extract of a longer conversation that I had with Michael about 10 mistakes that organizations make with culture. I've selected just a few of them here for you. So don't worry if the numbers don't add up or the sequence is wrong as you're listening to this. I hope you enjoyed. Hello, this is Gihan Pereira. I'm speaking today with Michael Henderson, who's an expert in workplace culture and leadership. Michael calls himself the corporate anthropologist. And I think that's a really apt description because he is an anthropologist and he uses those skills to look at the culture of organizations um, and help them to build and change and transform their cultures. And I've known Michael for a while and I always enjoy chats with him. So that's one of the reasons I want to talk to Michael today is because we always have interesting conversations, but also because culture is such a key buzzword in business today. But I it's a bit like the weather. Everyone wants to talk about it, but no one does anything about it. I mean, they certainly try to. There are many attempts at culture change, but few of them succeed and stick. And I know that Michael's got some really practical approaches that really make a difference. So welcome, Michael. Thank you, Gihan. How are things in sunny New Zealand? Gorgeous at the moment, but um, you never know being in New Zealand. It's sort of four seasons in one day, <laughs> yeah. which I guess is a little bit like culture. If you don't get it right, you never know quite what's coming next. So um, a possibly good analogy. Yeah, great. So, you know, I said you, you call yourself the corporate anthropologist, and I mentioned briefly why I think that's an apt description. Tell me a little bit more about that, Michael. What do you mean by the corporate anthropologist and maybe how did you get there? Well, you, you actually um, described it nicely before, Gihan. It, it, it is, as you said, I uh, have a degree in anthropology and social anthropology and uh, spent time studying sort of cultures uh, around the world, uh, both organizational and traditional, and increasingly started to become fascinated with uh, organizational cultures just because unlike societal cultures or traditional cultures or even tribal cultures, many organizations seem to struggle with culture. If you look at things like uh, global engagement surveys, and these have been sort of very popular for the last uh, 12 to 15 years, 
the average and the ongoing average globally for staff engagement surveys is roughly 70-30, with 70% of, and I'm talking about millions of employees around the world here, 70% of whom are disengaged with the work that they do, mm. the boss that they do that work with, and the organization they're doing the work for. Only 30% on average are actually engaged, in other words, willing to give discretionary effort, uh, provide good service to customers and willingly contribute ideas and suggestions for the organization to improve. So not a pretty picture at all. And so I just saw an opportunity to potentially offer some services, hopefully some advice or useful tips to organizations on how to get culture actually working for them rather than against them. It's interesting that culture just seems to be such a big word at the moment. And we've actually been talking about it since the 1980s, I think. But it seems that right now it seems to be more important than ever before. And for me, I'm thinking that in this fast-changing world, we can't rely on some of the things that used to work, like strategy and systems and processes. Is that the way that you see it, Michael? And what else do you think is making culture such an important thing now? Yeah, it's a good point, uh, Gihan. I think there's a number of factors that are really pushed culture to the forefront of people's mind, in particular businesses and leadership. Uh, One of which is the global financial crisis has uh, potentially shifted people's perspectives, even from a business planning point of view. Let me explain what I mean by that. So the GFC, the global financial crisis, to a large extent with the organizations I've been paying attention to observing or even working with, has really stimulated these organizations to concentrate on a key number of areas where they've tried to become more efficient and cut costs out of the business because times were tough. And so they've done things like automation, they've done things like outsourcing or restructuring or even letting people go. And of course, the end result of that, all those endeavors, is that you simply increase your efficiency rate, how efficiently you can get things done with maybe less income or less capital. But of course, so have all your competitors. So after the five or six years of squeezing every last drop of efficiency out of the organization, The end result of that, in terms of what uh, it does for customers, we actually haven't necessarily advanced ourselves any further than the competitors have. And also, the customers themselves have probably been doing the same thing in their own lives. So we've had this sort of situation going on where everyone's been striving for improved efficiency, whereas customers themselves actually expect efficiency. And you've only got to look at your world. The advent of technology and information is just constantly pushing the barriers And so if you take even the typical smartphone that we have at the moment, you've got a massive amount of efficiency literally in the palm of your hand nowadays. So what I could do with my iPhone in the palm of my hand in terms of being efficient compared to what my grandfather or even my father would have been able to do in his time is just incredible. And so I believe that organizations have been striving for improved efficiency to reduce costs and so almost as a survival technique. Um, but expecting that that's going to satisfy customers. And, of course, it's not. That's purely the starting point. That's what they expect from us. So where that's left a lot of organizations is they've suddenly realized that that's not going to cut it. And where they really need to go back to is not delivering efficiency to customers, but to deliver creativity and to deliver empathy. And creativity and empathy are at the very, very heart of any culture. Um, So creativity and empathy are actually a product of and a result of, if you like, a really efficient and high-performance culture. 
And so increasingly, Gihan, organizations have had to stop and rethink about where is their current culture, where is it sitting, is it in good enough shape to delivering that creativity and that empathy that customers are hungry for and demanding. I must admit I'm a bit surprised, Michael, when you said that these are the keys to a high-performing culture. I wasn't expecting you to say those words, creativity and empathy. So that's really interesting. Do you want to say a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, Creativity is um, literally the ability of the culture to be agile, to be able to respond to the changing environment and to be able to accommodate uh, even unexpected changes in the either the marketplace or the geopolitical or even ec- economic or environmental changes that are hammering the world at the moment. If you have a creative response to a changing world around you, what it basically means is you've got an optimistic viewpoint of the world and you also have a sense of empowerment within yourself as a culture. In other words, you back yourself and believe in yourselves. What that means is even a customer that's in touch with a culture, a business culture, that maybe has a challenge or a complaint or a difficulty, rather than the culture retracting and uh, defending itself, maybe even blaming the customer, it opens itself up and explores both internally and with the customer uh, ideal solutions. So high-performance cultures in all walks of life, in uh, organizations, I do a lot of work in high-performance sports areas in medicine and education, the hallmark of a a really high-performance culture is its ability to create solutions almost continuously as it moves forward and meets the new challenges that it's facing. So that's part one. The second part that you've just inquired about is empathy. And empathy is literally being able to get yourself out of your own headspace and your own worldview, your own cultural perspective, and allow yourself to embrace the viewpoint or their opinion or the perspective of someone else. Now, it doesn't mean you have to agree with them, but you do have to be able to pause long enough to go, well, how's the customer feeling about this? Why is the customer feeling so annoyed about what's just happened? Or potentially, how, how's the customer feeling so delighted and willing to refer our products and services to others? So you'll find that really high-performance cultures have that ability to be both creative and empathetic. Uh, the ability to shift into other people's perspectives quite rapidly. And the outcome of that, of course, is that they're agile, that they can respond to the changing environment, changing needs, and even change themselves if necessary to re- to respond appropriately and advance their opportunity to move forward into a future. Yeah, and I understand that because especially in today's world, you really need to be agile, don't you? It's no longer enough to be stable and say we can ride out the storm, but we really need to be agile. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Gihan, and there's some severe lessons there for us in traditional cultures at the moment. One of the things we do in anthropology to uh, track the demise of a culture is to monitor the growth of a language. And what we're finding at the moment is that there is a, a language or a dialect somewhere on the earth or the planet expiring. And what I mean by expiring is, is either A, the last person to speak that language or the last person to teach that language is passing away. Uh, and we're suddenly finding those, these languages are dying out at the moment at the rate of one every 15 days. Mm. And so what that tells us is if the language isn't able to be expressed, transferred um, onto the next generation or even across geographic areas, the culture itself becomes at risk. And it's often because the language didn't have the inbuilt capacity to be agile enough to fit into a changing world. And wherever language goes, culture follows. So it doesn't take an awful lot for, uh, as we can see from these traditional cultures that are dying out at a rapid rate of knots, to be caught in a position where you don't have the linguistic agility to adapt and therefore the cultural ability to adapt and you're gone. Wow. Wow. 
Michael, I subscribe to pretty much everything that you do. So I read your, <laughs> I read your newsletter, I read your blog. It's nice to know who it was. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And I, I listen to the podcast and they're great as well. And one of the things that I found particularly interesting and really relevant at the moment is a free report that you've got on your website. And uh, it, I mean, it's a great report because you, and you're giving it away free, which is the 10 mistakes that organizations make with culture. Right. And and just reading through that, it's just fascinating to see, see some of the things that uh, – I've seen I've seen other people talk about these sort of things and and you identifying and exposing them as mistakes and then they may not have always been mistakes it may have been things that used to work in the past but but don't anymore so I think it's really worth going through all of those 10 things so is, is that okay with you gladly Gihan thank you yeah great great so I've got that in front of me at the moment because I was hoping that you'd say yes to that <laughs> So the, the first one is, uh, mistake one is a shallow understanding of the culture. And this is one thing that pretty much everyone who talks about culture says, culture is the way we do things around here. And I think you're saying that's a mistake to to just leave it at that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you're right. Um, and what I mean by shallow understanding of culture is that uh, if you're going to stand any chance at all of being able to influence or inspire the type of culture you want in your organization, then clearly you need to understand what culture is to begin with. And as you said uh, in your introduction, it's a very commonly used word at the moment. And so all I'm suggesting here is if you're, if you, if you're not uh, from a background where you have some understanding or exposure to culture, uh, for example, as a leadership team in a business, most people in the leadership team as part of their MBA or even as part of their career development have probably had very limited exposure to what culture is, where it comes from, how it forms, who owns it, how it changes and what it's capable of. And so unfortunately what's happened is over the years, you correctly pointed out that the rather simplistic definition of the way we do things around here has emerged as a very sim- simple way of kind of boxing and categorizing what culture is. The reason I say it's a mistake to suggest that that is a good definition of culture is that it's a very, very shallow definition. And what I prefer to encourage organizations to do is to think not so much about the way we do things around here, but more importantly, why we do it this way. Mm. So by changing it from the way we do things, which in reality often tends to describe organizations, processes, systems, or even strategies rather than culture, the moment you shift it into why we do things this way, the word why brings in the perspective or the belief system sitting underneath the way things get done. And so within organizations, if you're not exploring why, if you're not explaining why, if you're not communicating why, and I think uh, fellow anthropologist Simon Sinek has got a book out literally on this topic, start with why. If you're not factoring in the why element of any conversation or description around culture, you're actually missing what it's all about because culture is actually deep. It's not just the surface levels of behaviors, rituals, artifacts, and symbols we see when we go into an organization. It's why those behaviors are occurring, why that symbol or that artifact is meaningful in the first place, and why people are actually even turning up to be part of the culture is as important, if not more important, than the way things get done around here. So I really encourage organizations is to stop thinking about culture as the way we do things around here because it doesn't give you the depth or even access the power of where culture actually is coming from in the first place. Right. And it seems like saying the way we do things around here is not very really useful, is it? It's just no, it's, it's a snapshot rather than any sort of diagnostic. Exactly right, Gihan. And it doesn't, uh, it doesn't even necessarily describe if it's a good way. So the way we do things around here may be unproductive. Or the way we do things around here may be bad for customer service. Uh, 
And so it, it doesn't necessarily give us much movement. It, it almost, even the expression of the statement itself, the way we do things around here, has a finality about it. It sounds like it's already set in concrete mm. and they can't shift it or budget. Yeah, exactly. And we're, we're up to mistake number 10, Michael. So number 10 is building teams over building culture. That's a mistake. Yes. Um, so let's just reiterate that because even the, the title of this mistake where I've written it potentially uh, sounds a little misleading. What I'm really saying is don't build teams, build culture. Mm. And I don't know whether you recall, I'm sure you do, Gihan, back in the 80s and 90s, there was a real kind of emphasis and it became very, very popular for organizations to do team building exercises. Do you remember those? Mm, I was very much part of that because I was a middle <laughs> manager in, us, in corporate Australia at the time. Right. And so it completely makes sense, again, to you know, try and uh, help people to bond better together and to work better together and understand each other, etc. Uh, but typically what I found was when I was observing that sort of in, in action, as an anthropologist, I was always curious as to how many of the organizations went about sort of building uh, teams. So they often did these outdoor activities that involved a test of courage, and skill set and uh, hopefully collaboration and rapport to get the job done. So I remember uh, at one period of time, in particular, high rope courses were a very popular mechanism for uh, these team-building team exercises. And I always found it curious that you know this time and emphasis was, was spent on debriefing the group after they'd done or failed or succeeded at doing high rope courses. But, of course, there are no high ropes back in the office. We tend to use staircases and elevators <laughs> and lifts. And so a lot of the contexts that the uh, learnings were taking place were completely out of sync with the, the cultural environment that the people actually operated in. And so inadvertently what was happening was that we were putting a bigger emphasis on teams than we were on culture. So let me just give you an example of what I mean by this. In New Zealand, we've got this uh, national rugby team, which I'm sure you've heard of, called the All Blacks. Mm that uh, we're possibly guilty of being a little bit uh, over-patriotic and proud of, but they are apparently the most successful sports team in any code in the history of sport. So been operating for over 105 years, played over 500 international games against some extremely powerful and competitive and skillful opposition. But over that period of time and over those number of games, they've managed to maintain a ridiculously high win rate, um, which is uh, typically in the in the early 80%, so over 80% wow. success rate over a 100-year period, and often even higher than that, up to periods of being 86-87%. The curious thing about this, Gihan, is that we often think that the All Blacks are a rugby team, but if you actually go and have a closer look at them, what you find is that that team is constantly changing. Clearly, over a 105-year period, yeah. it's changed significantly because many of the original members have died and passed on. But even if you watch them play from week to week, the team actually changes on a regular basis. So it's very uh, very unusual to see the same 15 players take to the field week to week. And even in one game, they'll often have substitutes kind of rotate around and replace certain players on the field through injury or fatigue. So one of the key things I like to talk about is the lesson we can learn from the All Blacks is, in fact, and I was listening to an interview here in New Zealand just last week from the head coach of the All Blacks saying, look, the key is not actually to focus on the team but to build the culture. Uh, players, or in terms of organizational terms, employees come and go. They think about this this 12 months. The number of changes in personnel within organizations and teams within organizations can be significant. 
We had people leaving. We had people joining us. We had people being seconded out of one team and into another for a particular project. So what I'm really encouraging organizations to do here is to drop that fixation we had last century on teams and, in fact, shift it to culture, to create a culture within a particular environment. So no matter who comes or goes within to that environment, the culture itself is asking, requesting, and inviting them to behave and operate in a particular way. Because I'm sure you yourself, Gihan, will have been in teams where you've just had even one individual, for example, leave and the whole dynamic of the team shifted dramatically or potentially had a, you know, a member arrive, a new member arrive. And their personality alone, if you're not careful, can influence the general feeling of that team. If you can get away from that and ask anybody, obviously it overlaps into recruiting and uh, induction and training and development, but if you actually teach people what this culture is that they're about to move into, what the expectations are of being part of this culture, what are some of the dynamics of the culture that make it as powerful as it is or that keep it above the line and therefore some of the behaviors that are likely to drag it below the line and why we guard against those, what you're providing is the opportunity for the culture to continue on as the All Blacks have done not only for years, but potentially for decades, and that any individual joining or leaving uh, that environment can have a more comfortable integration both in and out of the process rather than it feeling sort of so dramatic every time somebody joins or leaves the teams and, and shakes up the team dynamics. Do you think that people focused on building teams because it is simply easier to do those team building exercises than to do the hard work in building a culture? Or is it something else? Is it simply that team building used to work in the 20th century, but that's so 20th century now. Yeah, I think the combination of the two, I think, uh, A, it was convenient. Um, It was also a uh, possibly easy way of taking responsibility for uh, people dynamics outside of the organization, given to so-called experts, you know, could facilitate us through these courses and hopefully we'd be able to translate that back into the business. So I think if, if it was really harsh, it was almost a bit of a cop-out mm. uh, for organizations and leaders actually, again, delegating culture off to somebody else. At the same time, I think you just raised an interesting second point, which is, yeah, I think some of the dynamics have shifted that um, because of outsourcing, because of online technology, because of networks, uh, what used to be possible and even the emphasis or the requirements from teams back in the last century that we had in organizations, I think those dynamics have shifted dramatically now that we're far more loose and agile um, with potentially uh, more requirements on us to be able to integrate with not only other teams and departments inside our own business, but potentially different customer groupings or marketplaces as well. So I just believe that working with culture as a dynamic probably gives us greater flexibility and opportunity to get what we want rather than sticking to that maybe outdated concept of just working with teams. So, Michael, we've come to the end of those 10 mistakes. And again, I really appreciate you taking the time to go into them in detail. And I know we could talk about this for hours and hours. And I know you've written so many books about it. So as we finish up here, let's let's talk about taking action. This leads to being really active about culture, isn't it? It's not a snapshot. It's not a noun. It's not something where you just look at, here's where we are, take it or leave it. It's a case of being active and working with it and being agile and, and managing it and being dynamic. Yeah, and I've got to say, Gihan, human beings are experts at culture. Um, I'm often challenged just on this topic. You know, people often will approach me after a keynote speech or haven't read the book and go, look, is this emphasis of organizations on culture just the latest business trend? And my response to that is actually no. Uh, If anything, you could argue the opposite, that business, in fact, is just the latest cultural trend. Uh, Cultures have been, as you uh, 
uh, will know, of course, being in Australia with the indigenous people of Australia, uh, culture's been around for tens of thousands of years, but business in its current and modern format is, is relatively new, a little over 400 years old. And so I just believe that there's a lot of expertise and natural ability and innate ability that we have as human beings to work with, create and inspire cultures that are worthwhile belonging to that can add enormous value to the organization, both in financial terms, but also in brand terms and in terms of customer delight and satisfaction. And that if we can just uh, remind ourselves of the power of that offering and the opportunity that culture has, and just by spending a little time, as we've done here, uh, to learn a little bit about culture, then we can unlock that power and unleash it for the benefit of all. Great, great. And just before we finish up, Michael, what sort of clients do you like to work with? And what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Oh, thank you, Gihan. That's very kind. Um, look, my, my ideal client is just any organization, regardless of size. So size is, size is not relevant. What I'm particularly passionate about is working with organizations that believe in people. In other words, if any organization that believes their organization can't grow unless the people within the organization grow and the collective opportunity of culture to support that growth can both uh, help the individuals advance themselves, help the organization advance, and help the organization's ability to serve society advance. Those are my ideal customers. So it's anybody that sees and believes in people and sees the opportunity for culture to contribute to performance both individually and collectively. They're my ideal customer. And to answer your second question, the contact point, probably the best place for contact is through my website, which is www.com cultures at work.com so that's cultures in plural atwork.com the 10 mistakes document that uh, complements the discussion we've just had here is available for people on the website if they're happy just to uh, sign up they can access that uh, document for further review and reading of the conversation you and i have just had now yeah and to add to that michael I'd, i'd highly recommend that people subscribe to your blog read your subscribe to the newsletters which i think they get when they when they get the report as well so that's another bonus that they get and uh, listen to the podcast as well i've, I've just started uh, subscribing to the podcast downloaded all the past episodes really enjoyed listening to them as well michael so there's a there's a wealth of information there particularly about your really new powerful concept of the above the line cultures and i think that's going to be really transformational for organizations who want to make a difference to the way that things are done around here Thank you, Gihan. It's been a delight to spend some time with you, as it always is, and uh, particularly just for your generosity in terms of unpacking the uh, the stuff that I'm passionate about, but obviously committed to uh, serving others. With. I really appreciate your generosity with that. My pleasure, Michael. It's been it's been a great experience for me as well. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Michael. As I mentioned earlier, this is just an extract of a longer conversation that I had. And if you'd like to hear the entire conversation, you can get it on my CD audio program called Above the Line. And you can get that at gihanperero.com. So that's it for Expert Gold Radio this month. I hope you enjoyed the radio show and I hope you found something valuable for your personal and professional life. And this month, particularly for your organization and your organization's culture. Uh, This is not the only thing that you can do to engage with me. If you'd like to engage with me in other ways, here are some other things that you can do. You can subscribe to my email newsletter, expertgold, at gihanperera.com. And while you're there, read and subscribe to my blog as well. 
Also, sign up to my free webinar series. You can also watch videos at my video channel, which you can find at gihanperera.tv, and I've got there regular educational videos that I publish. You can also join my membership site, the eGurus community, at egurus.info, E-G-U-R-U-S dot info. Or you can engage me as a speaker for your next conference, and you can find out more at gihanspeaks.com. You've been listening to Expert Gold Radio. If you'd like to subscribe, read the show notes, or leave your comments, visit expertgoldradio.com. And remember, great minds don't think alike.